Welcome back, everyone. It's your host, Aiden, and I'm here with another exciting episode of the Push-Pull Factor. This is the podcast where we debunk myths on migration and hear real stories from real people. So I've been thinking, and I honestly need a name for you guys, my listeners. I really want something fun, you know, something catchy, but nothing really, you know, nothing really comes to mind. Like Push-Pull Factor Nation, Push-Pull Factor Faculty. Okay, not that, I don't like that one. Sounds like a middle school or something. But if any of you have any ideas, drop a comment on Instagram, tweet us, email me at Aiden at pushpullfactor.com. I'm really racking my brain, but I really want something fun to address you guys as. I don't want anything like, you know, how they have like my tribe, my boss babes, nothing, nothing like that, please. But this week, we actually did have a pretty dope interview because it was recorded in person in my impromptu studio, aka the bedroom of my Boston apartment. But it was a cool experience, really, getting the face-to-face connection with one of my guests and having that in-person feel. It really was a whole different vibe, and I think, you know, gave a different dimension to the podcast and the interview. But that's definitely going to be a rare occasion for the podcast due to the nature of it. I'm truly trying to represent the entire world, as you guys know. I really want to hit every single country, and we're also living in a global pandemic, so makes travel and face-to-face interviews a little difficult. So this week, we're talking about China, and I feel like it's one of those countries you just have to go to. It's so rich in culture, and Americans actually know about it. At least they think they know about it. Like, you hear what China's up to in the news. China's very involved in the popular consciousness. You know their political relationship with the United States. Like, you grow up reading Made in China and damn near everything, so I think it's safe to say there's a a good interaction between the United States and China. So I've never personally been, but I do want to. Maybe like a nice big family trip, because it is a fun cultural experience. Like, there's the Great Wall. That's one of the wonders of the world, so you just automatically have to see that. It's the Terracotta Warriors. And you can experience some actual real Chinese food and not, you know, the American version. As good as Crab Rangoon are. But, you know, there's also, like, another layer of it. I feel like just being black and going to Asia as a whole experience, you have to, like, mentally prepare for it, because it... Let me tell you, like, so I went to Thailand and Laos for a week through a program with my school and, you know, kind of felt like a celebrity with people bringing out their phones, trying to sneak pictures of me and, you know, people coming up with me asking to take selfies, I guess. Not that many big black people in Thailand or Laos, but, you know, maybe I should have ran with it and said I was an NFL player or something, but I don't know what, I don't know what I really could have reaped from that. <laughs> but back to China, so... I was first exposed to China in 2008 with, with the Beijing Olympics. And you know, you're a young kid and you see the opening ceremony. It's a big cultural experience. It looks so much fun. There's so much going on. So it's like one of the first distinct memories I have about China. And I think what also really impresses me about China is that all the advancements they make in technology, their commitment to education, just like how rapidly they've grown over time. Like the rise of China was a big theme in history in school. And the like, education is also ties back into it's the fact that it's a big theme of this episode. And I really understand why China has the reputation that it does after speaking with Tianchu. And like, honestly, like, I thought my tiger parents from Jamaica were pretty intense, but the Chinese education system is a whole different ballgame. <laughs> but I think what's funny is that I feel like Chinese media isn't something that they're particularly known for especially in relation to some other East Asian countries that are rich with media that, that you may think of, such as South Korea or Japan. Japan has anime and manga and like video games, because a lot of those companies are headquartered there. And then Korea has the K- South Korea has the K-pop industry, which is something that, you know, they manufactured. They created that industry because they needed something to export, and they've done a great job, because I feel like K-pop culturally is resonating in the United States to some extent. So circling back to China and migration and education in general, we'll be moving on to one of my favorite segments, migration education. This is the part of the show where I share a quick burst of information related to the country that we discussed today and also related to migration. So I wanted to mix it up a little bit and sort of talk about a different concept of migration. So today we'll be focusing on internal migration. And actually, Chinese internal migration is one of the biggest movements of people anywhere on Earth in the, one la- in the last 100 years, due to their massive population size and the large geographical landscape. So it's estimated that China has over 150 million official internal migrants. So according to some research on internal migration by UC Davis, 
Economic factors are often the motivators from, for migration from rural areas in China to cities like Shanghai, Beijing, and Chongqing. This isn't much unlike the United States where jobs tend to be centered in cities like San Francisco, New York, and Boston, especially for those high-profile, high-income industries like tech, finance, consulting, and it draws people away from their homes in like, those more flyover states. So about 70% or 864 million of China's residents live in rural areas. And in these areas, the household incomes average about to about $225 USD per year versus around 425 USD in urban areas. An estimated 150 million rural workers, which is about a third of the rural labor force, are unemployed or underemployed. Data in China says that there are 130 million surplus workers in rural areas. This is why the government can often also play a hand in shaping internal migration. There are gaps in the labor markets that they're trying to fill, and they do have 3.7 million square miles of land to populate and people to shift around. In fact, as early as the 1950s, the government in China began to organize and fund migration to reclaim land, industrialize, and to construct in the interior and frontier regions. So what's interesting about internal migration in China that it kind of differs based on gender. So young men from rural areas tend to migrate to urban areas to fill construction jobs, while young rural women often find jobs in factories along coastal areas. I'm assuming the factories need water from the coastal areas and that's why their relationship is the way that it, that it is. However, the internal migration story isn't automatically easier because you don't cross a border and technically embrace a new culture. These rural Chinese citizens still have to deal with discrimination culturally and even systemically through housing systems or the fact that just the jobs that they have while higher paying back home aren't the highest paying jobs in the city and require long hours with often little oversight. So it must be understood also that much of the Chinese migration is circular when it's internal and external, meaning that a migrant re retains a link to his village and often sends back money and goods, and they often provide the start of a social network for other migrants from the village when they come over, and you can really see the importance of having the slice of home during my interview with Tianchu. In fact, I think that's a perfect transition to get to the discussion, and we had a really engaging talk, and again, first in-person studio interview, so it was quite an exciting time. With that said, let's get into it. Here with me, I have Tianji. She's a Chinese-born woman currently living in the United States and a UVA graduate, currently working as a pricing analyst. She also has the honor of being one of the first friends I made in adulthood post-college, and being the first guest that I have actually physically here in the studio, along with our friend Lupe for the live studio audience. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have her on, so welcome Tianji. How are you doing today? I'm good, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm very excited to have you here really, to get to get to know you more and get know get to know more about your background because I feel like yes we're friends but I feel like we haven't talked much about our backgrounds our culture so I'm excited I'm too. excited about that too. So I guess let's start off with telling the viewers where in China you consider your home. Um, that would be Shanghai. So I was born and raised there, and I moved to the states um, for college. So I was living there for eighteen, nineteen years. Okay. And then going off of that, what has your relationship with migration been? And then in general, in general, how is it viewed in China? Is it very common? Do a lot of people migrate to China? Do a lot of people migrate from China? Is there a lot of internal migration from different provinces? Um, I think it's definitely getting more and more common now with more and more students decide to study abroad in China, whether it's for high school or college. Um, so yeah, I would say it's getting more and more popular. But, but not a lot of black people, I'm guessing. Uh, nope. <laughs> <laughs> the driver behind your initial migration was indeed education, but is was a university or even high school abroad, like, is it a very common thing in China? Do a lot of people want to have their education experiences outside the borders of China, especially compared to, you know, institutions in, in the United States, in the UK, in Australia? Uh, when I was applying for college, it was definitely getting more and more common for people to come to the States for um, college or high school. Um, I think recent years it's getting more and more common for people to go to the Europe instead of the U.S. because the recent um, immigration law in the U.S. is not mm. that friendly um, towards, I don't know, it's like Chinese people or just international students in general. So, yeah. I mean, I mean you can say that. 45 has been pretty vocal about how he feels about people from China. So... <laughs> 
off of that, what's the general perception of Americans in China? I'm assuming it's a very, you know, blonde hair, blue eyed interpretation, mm-hmm. but like, I'm sure the relationship is very interesting because our countries are linked very closely geopolitically, economically, and at this point, pretty socially. But so I guess what's the vibe? Like, how do people feel about Americans? Um, I think they're definitely very popular in Chinese people's <laughs> eyes. Like in China, when you see an American, when you see like a blonde or um, any like foreign looking people, they tend to be very we look up to them like we think they're very popular they're very pretty and all that um and you know like the general impression that you have for an american like very free spirit very um i don't know lively and active and stuff like that okay so is that i guess is that why learning english for educational success is so like important and common or do you think it's driven by like economic factors mainly um, I think it's more for economic factors, I would say, because um, I think a lot of Chinese companies are doing business with American firm or like European firm or even Hong Kong. Um, a lot of people there speaks English as well. So I think it's for economic reasons most of the time. The one thing I came across in my research was a test called the Gaokao, which is apparently the test for entrance to university in a similar fashion to the ACT and the SAT. So I guess two questions here. Did you take it? And then did you, can you provide a little more insight about it? Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I didn't take it. Or fortunately. Unfortunately, I didn't <laughs> yeah, take it. I don't it. think you wanted to do that So, um, I, I don't think I can provide as much insight as I want to, but I would say for most people that's like the hardest thing that they have to go through um not to be dramatic but like in their teenage mm-hmm. years like that's the hardest thing that they have to do and but what i can speak about is we have like a similar concept text uh, test for people who go from middle school to high school so mm-hmm. we did um another exam called zhongkao so gaokao means like higher um, exam and Zhongkao means like medium mm-hmm. exam okay. um, so the idea of that is very similar so everybody takes the same test and they rank you from the high score to the lowest score and the best school gets the highest mm-hmm. uh, one so for example like the I guess like the top four high schools take about 400 students each year and they just pick from the top like 2,000 students and decide who they want based on that score. Wow. So it's really competitive and um, and it's all depend on one test. As you can imagine, it gets really scary because you make all sorts of like stupid mistakes in mm-hmm. like exam and that could cost you um, I don't know, going like going to the dream school that you've wanted to go to for like fifteen years of your life. So yeah. that's a lot of pressure to put on one exam. It is. To be honest, I think a lot of people decide to go study abroad for college, especially to avoid that exam because it is that scary. And people um, prepare for that exam for one to two years minimum during high school. I think so the first, well, in Shanghai, at least we have three years of high school. And the first two years, you take like general classes to study um, like general subjects or whatever. And the last year, the entire year, all you do is do practice exams just for that exam. Okay. to prepare for that like mentally and intellectually oh my god it's like cpa exam in the bar but like you're 14. <laughs> i honestly think not to be dramatic again i th- honestly think it is one of the hardest exam in the world i i believe it i, I would not be taking that can i ask a question <laughs> <laughs> you cut this out but is that the exam so i was reading somewhere that like there's a day where like they don't even let like airplanes fly because like it's like too loud for some students oh. and like it makes them distracted during a test. Okay. But I don't know if that's I actually don't know. I don't know if that's the case. I don't know. But that exam goes on for a couple of days. So, hey. so yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it goes on for a couple of days. Um it's it's so what? So I guess when it came time for you to apply to college, did you specifically choose wanting one in the United States or were you looking all over the world? Um, I was just looking at the United States. Um, so what happened to me is I did a study abroad program in high school where I spent a year in California. And after that, I kind of decided that I want to come here for college. 
Um, so I didn't really look anywhere else, I guess. All right. And then, so when it came time to apply for colleges, I guess, what were the drivers? Like, were you focused on the prestige, size, majors available, international student integration? Like, what were the things that were important to you? Uh, I think prestige is definitely the most important one. So what happened is in China, we have these like study abroad agencies mm-hmm. that helps um, students and their parents to pick schools because obviously we're not in the States for majority of the students. Like they are in China. They don't know what the schools are like, uh, what are the environments are like. So those agencies provide us information um, for the students in China. And uh, I think the most important thing that people look at is obviously like what what's there, like U.S. news rating. Mm-hmm. Um, and mainly I think Chinese students were picking from like the top 40 to 50 schools that they're applying to. Makes sense. So for you, like what ultimately led to like William & Mary? Was it that or were there any other specific? Um, so I like... Uh, any other international students I applied to a ton of schools I think I applied to like 20 to 30 uh, (laughs) U.S. colleges which is crazy amount Um, and I think I eventually got into UCSD uh, University of Illinois and Will & Mary those are my top three choices and um, I think in my head it was an easy choice because I don't want to be at a place where there are a lot of Asians, there are a lot of international students because I don't think that will help me get out of my comfort zone mm-hmm. and um, for me to be able to like fully experience American culture. And I think Willow Mary is one of those schools that have a relatively small international student presence. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I was looking for when I was applying. That makes sense. It's interesting that you were specifically looking to really get out of your comfort zone and not really caring about, I guess, international student support. But knowing that, I do have to bring up, I know that you ended up transferring to UVA. So I want to know, like, what were the drivers like left that pushed you out of William & Mary, I guess? That's a good question. So um, I I didn't have a bad time at William & Mary. It was just very small school. I think um, there was about 5,000 undergrad at William & Mary. And to be honest, there wasn't that much to do. I think at William Mary, if you're not in a frat or in a sports team, um, the social scene isn't that great. So I think I was feeling like I'm lacking that like American um, college experience that I was looking for. Mm-hmm. So I decided to transfer very early on. I think I was very prepared. Um, to like for like transfer applications and like getting recommendations and all that um i think i made up my mind like the first semester at william mary um and in terms of why i decided uva so i ended up getting offer from vanderbilt and uva and i think vanderbilt is like a very similar size compared to william mary so i think uva would be a much better choice for me because uh, it is the opposite of Willow Mary, right? It's like very big. Um, it has all sorts of stuff going on, like Greek life and stuff like that. Yeah, when I think of like typical American college, uni- like university experience that you see on the TV and in the movies, I would like, UVA, Michigan, like those are the schools that come to mind. <laughs> Definitely not William and Mary and Babson. <laughs> so I know that you were involved in a sorority, so you don't have to say the letters or put anything on blast, but. I guess, what was that experience like from a cultural perspective? Do similar institutions exist in China? And what did like, what did your family and friends from home think about it? Um, they definitely don't exist in China. <laughs> and um, my family and friends are pretty surprised that I would want to be in a sorority or if I was in a sorority. Um, but from like a cultural perspective, I think it's definitely very different. But I, I also think it's like part of what I was looking for when I transfer to UVA, when I make every single choice, because I think I just want to get out of my comfort zone and try something new. And it was definitely something new for me. So makes sense. And was there a lot of like a high adoption rate of international students in Greek life at UVA or not really? Or was it just kind of like average, like a few? Definitely there? not. There was very mm-hmm. few international students and sororities mm-hmm. and fraternities. Do you have any thoughts on why that is, or do you just think it's because it's a foreign concept? Um, I think, I think unfortunately, I do think sororities and fraternities are looking for 
um, very certain types of people. And a lot of international students don't fit into that type or stereotype. Um, and, and to be honest, I don't think a lot of international students are interested in being a sorority or fraternity either. I think they're doing their own thing. They're happy in their own skin. They don't want to be in a fraternity or sorority either. So I think it comes both ways. Um, and that explains the very low international student participation rate. That makes sense. So we're going to now transition over away from college and more to your current experiences here in the United States. But knowing that you lived in quite a few different places, California, Charlottesville, and now in Boston, I'm curious sort of how those cities differed and if your experiences were kind of changed depending on where you were in, in the States. My first year in the States, I was in California during high school um, for one year. And I think that was definitely my toughest year. And I think it is the same thing for everybody who spent their first year in a foreign country, right? There's a lot of culture shock. Um, and to be honest, I was having a really hard time to fit in, even though when I look around me, they're like 60, 70% of Asian populations. But um, it's just like the way that we were raised and the way we talk, um, everything is so different. It was a very hard year, to be honest. Um, and then moving to Charlottesville, Virginia, um, it's different in another way, in a sense that when I look around, I don't see that many Asians at all, like maybe 10%, 20%. And that comes like another level of cultural adjustment where, okay, when I look at white people, they do all sorts of stuff that I don't understand. I didn't understand at that point. Maybe I still don't. Um, but yeah i think it was very different but at that time i think i was more comfortable being in a foreign country and i was trying to figure out what my identity was and how i can make the most out of my time in college in the united states um and moving to boston 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 um I think when you're in school, at least when I was in Virginia, I think definitely a lot of people are from Virginia, was born and raised there. Um, but I still was able to encounter a lot of people who were uh, from different parts of the states or from different countries. Um, but I think Boston is very different in a way that I think I want to say like 80, 90% of people that I met in Boston, they were born and raised here. Mm -hmm. They've never left Massachusetts for an extended period of time. Um, and it, it was a shock to me that um, I don't want to say that people are not cultured, but they have less of that um, exposure, I guess, to like people from uh, other places. Yeah, I can definitely see that about Boston. A lot of people I know are from like somewhere in massachusetts a town 30 40 minutes away and it's a very local culture very sports driven very student driven very sports true yeah i do have to ask i think i guess would shanghai be more of a comparison to new york in your eyes would you say yeah i would say so i want to say new york is probably the city that's most similar to shanghai and then i guess like Bo i guess beijing would be like dc so like what would boston be like is there like a comparison for it you think mm, that's a good question I can't think of like a Chinese equivalent city for Boston, to be honest. But I'll get back to you on that if I think of one. <laughs> and I'll update the listeners too. We'll we'll get you there. We'll get you your answer. So for the viewers, Tianchu and I work at the same company. Are technically co-workers, even though we do nothing similar. But it drives this next question. So how do you think culture manifests in the workplace, if at all? No. Culture manifests. How would you say, Lupe? How does culture like manifest? The company do you think culture manifests at workplace at all do you think so? yeah like how i think just how people are raised or the environments they're raised and sort of affect how they work or how they approach things like like even thinking like hmm. i forgot the name of it i learned it in school but it's like oh. a theory of it's some theory but it's like things like individualism versus collectivism power distance mm, and i think those concepts okay. definitely play into how you approach things okay i definitely have something to say to that okay no but lupe go I want to hear your perspective. My perspective. <laughs> I'm gonna gather information um, about how culture manifests in the. Um, 
I do see like a lot of uh, parallels with people who are like international versus like in the states. Like you can even notice it. Like we're all eating lunch, so I think like even like you'll see people who are like from this from similar like countries, kind of like sitting together or like um, similar backgrounds sitting together. Um, yeah, and then you see some of that like individualism versus like, collectivism that you talked about. So I like I know so like a lot there's a lot of like Indians who work on my team and like they all like every single Friday they do like before it's like pre-COVID they would do like a uh, like Indian restaurant with like all the Indians and it would just be them. And That's like they're so super lit. Yeah, it's really cute. It's really cute. Um, and so they like go have lunch. But the thing is that they were never. Ex- exclusive either like they would still invite people but that was like kind of like the lunch that they had because they're very like um like family oriented and so like they would like invite mm. people to come they like want wanted it to be like this huge like group gathering yeah whereas like i think you would see that rarely with like a little bit like more american-born people where they would just have lunch by themselves or they, mm-hmm. they, That's have, a fact. Well, they would just have like lunch at their desk or something just yeah. to like get the work done like they don't really yeah, yeah. they mm-hmm. just kind of like separate that like work life and like um yeah get like personal life i think from like a working style perspective um i don't know i think it's kind of rooted in like chinese people's culture that um, when we work or when we study or whatever, like we just put our heads down and do the work. Um, and we would hope that like your managers or, um, somebody higher up will pick up that work that you've done. And that's the only thing that we're evaluated on. Um, I think that's what Chinese people usually think, but I think it's very, it's a very different story when you work in American company um it it is a lot of times about that soft skills mm-hmm. about like sh- actually showing people and telling people that how much work that you've done and um unfortunately sometimes it is about being as loud as you can at a workplace so i think that was kind of i don't know if you call it a culture shot but like maybe everybody experienced that um first year in their career but I definitely yeah. think that can be driven by culture because that's something that I, somebody, you know, born in the American education system and allowed us New Yorker, if, if you will. Like, I think that's something I knew and expected, like something I like, even took advantage of in college, like building my own brand, like trying yeah. to get visibility across the college and really, yeah, you know, I guess being as loud as I can. Yeah, I think it also kind of tied back to like uh, Chinese education style, right? Because everybody in China is evaluated in exam. Like, you just take that exam and you show how much you learn and show much how much you know, and that's the only way you're evaluated. Like, you don't have to be loud. You don't have to tell people that you know this stuff. Like, it's manifested in the exam scores and everything like that. Um, yeah, so It's funny you bring that up, actually, because... So, I would cherry-pick my classes in college by looking at the syllabi, syllabi and seeing which ones didn't have final exams. So, because I was good at get cases, papers, presentations, mm-hmm. but I'm not the best test taker and I think that worked for me and so it's funny that you bring that up and have that difference yeah we're shifting to more of a guess controversial subject so we sort of talked about this earlier off air and you had some thoughts but some articles out there suggest that Chinese employees are quote-unquote less creative than Western employees and even came across an HBR article sort of why China can't innovate I just wanted to gauge your thoughts about it and your perceptions from that especially working at a tech company well, I haven't read that article, and I want to know what statistic they're using to reach that statement. But um, <laughs> I think the one thing that, like, I think uh, worth bringing up is um, I think Chinese colleges and American colleges are very different, um, and it kind of have like a very big impact on you, especially. Like, people go through college from, like, what, 18 to 22, and it's, like, a formative years where you build your character and, like, personality. So, I do think it has, the style has, like, a big impact on people. And given that, I think, so give a little background of Chinese colleges. It's, like, it's really intense. Like, into the U.S., um, feeling like U.S. colleges are really easy, to be honest, comparing to my high school, (laughs) not gonna lie. Um... And I know for a fact that, like, Chinese colleges are way harder than, like, 
my high school, obviously. Um, and I, this was funny, but back at UVA, I had a friend um, who went to UVA for master. So he went to um, like a Chinese college for undergrad and came to UVA for a master degree in um, statistics. And I was talking to him about it. I was like, oh, so how do you feel about a course here? Like, do you feel like it's hard? How does it compare to, um, you know, like Chinese colleges? And he was like, dude, it's a joke. Like, (laughs) (laughs) it's a graduation, uh, like graduate programs. And he thinks it's a joke. He was like, yeah, my entire semester of work load is not even like as much comparing to one single class in china and i was like well i'm not surprised and it's just like it just shows that how rigorous and how intense um it is for like for um, chinese colleges and imagine like when you spend 80 90 percent of your time just study your ass off like you don't have those free time to do this do that like I, I think I did a lot of stuff during college, which I would never like, never do if I stayed in China, like going outdoors, like climbing, hiking, and uh, I don't know, join a sorority and like hang out with my friends. Like I wouldn't have time to do that. And I think those activities build my character for sure. And I would be like 100% a different person if I um, went through Chinese colleges. And going back to the creativity part, um, I, I, again, I don't know how this article, how they evaluate and quantify who is more creative, but um, what I want to say is I think it depends on what you, um, what companies are, like, what you think is successful. Um, I think if I were ever go back to China, I would never be able to compete with the Chinese employees there in terms of my technical skills. Um, they're just a lot more advanced and much more hardworking in that aspect than I am. Sorry, I'm just curious. Um, so I know you talked about Chinese colleges being like more rigorous than American colleges. So do you think in China, like, are American colleges seen as like, like what's more prestigious? Like if you graduate from like a mm-hmm. Chinese college or if you graduate from like an American college? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I think in Chinese employers eyes it's definitely like a very good thing that if you have like an American degree um, but it has to be from a good school like if it's a school that they never heard of especially now given that more and more people are studying abroad and having that degree it doesn't mean as much so I think for um, schools in the top 20s it means a lot but after that it probably doesn't mean as much but it is funny um, that it does mean a lot for American employers, uh, for Chinese employers to have like an American degree. Mm-hmm. I wonder why. I guess like they never, I guess like for those Chinese employers, they never study abroad themselves. They never, they don't know like how rigorous the courses are actually in the US. Um, so do they think so. just US colleges are just like a cakewalk? I think they, I think they like, they put it in a pet, what do you call it, pedestal? Yeah. Um, they just think like American, American education is such an ideal thing. Mm. Um, but they don't understand, uh, like the material, the education material is a lot less rigorous than Mm. Chinese education, in my opinion. Yeah. I think you definitely bring up some important distinctions and how you were able to have like a more holistic education at UVA and just yeah. a very balanced one yeah but sort of speaking to your point about there I'm curious to sort of get a benchmark of like like what was like the math like because typically in the US and in New York I think I did eighth grade algebra ninth grade geometry 10th grade algebra 2 trig 11th pre-calc and then 12th grade mm-hmm. I was supposed to do calculus I was like no I'm not doing that I took stats and stuff. <laughs> so like what what was it similar in China were you doing calculus at like ninth grade like <laughs> It's funny, oh, this is like getting too much into details about math, but we actually didn't teach calculus until college, and that was for a very specific reason. I think uh, Chinese education, we have this perception about math that everything you learn that you have to prove, you have to be able to prove Mm -hmm. it. 
So I think a lot of calculus, um, like theory or formula that you use, most of the time people here don't understand why those formulas mm -hmm. are the way they are. And for that exact reason, we don't teach that until um, we reach college in China. Mm -hmm. But we do learn a lot of like, I don't know if um, people here have taken like higher level math, but the number theory class that I took in college, which in a lot of people's eyes were like one of the harder um, pure math classes, I've learned that in middle school. And it was, it was like, I think it makes sense for me and it was easy for me in college because I had experience with it. Um, so that just put things in perspective, I think. That really does. So it's more like building like a holistic math education and framework rather than like, this is what you're supposed to do at this level. So memorize this and hope you understand yeah. the concepts for the test. Yeah. Yes, that makes sense. That's, and yes, ladies and gentlemen, she was a math major. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I know there's a sizable Chinese diaspora yeah. in the United States. But can you share how you sort of try to get a slice of home here in the United States? I think I got that slice of home from my international friends. Like every major holidays, we would do something that uh, we would have done if we were in China. So like, for example, um, we just had like a mid-autumn festival that we were eat mooncake. Um, and I don't know, like, just like food that only Chinese people would eat, like hot pot, dim sum, that like, we all have that appreciation for it. But whereas like normally my, I don't know, American friends wouldn't. Um, so it's always more fun to have it with my Chinese friends. Um, so I guess that's it. Hmm. That's kind of like the only way you can get it here, probably. Just food? Yeah, food and... I don't know, I think food is such an important part in Chinese culture though. Like we do so much for each festival. Like we make dumplings by, from scratch and uh, we eat like certain type of food for a certain type of holidays. Because um, it, it always have like a longer story behind it and like where the mm -hmm. culture and history is coming from. But um, it is a big part of Chinese culture for sure. That makes sense. But I feel like with a sizable like American Chinese population, I'm sure they... I guess they try to replicate it on like <laughs> citywide affairs, but I'm sure it's yeah. nothing compared to back home. Yeah, it's also, it, I don't know, I think we tried our best to get that slice of home, as you would say. Um, but it, as you can imagine, it's different when you don't get to share that with your family, when you don't um, get to spend those like major holidays with people that you're actually supposed to spend it with. Like, for example, the mid-autumn uh, festival that we just had, it was supposed to be a holiday where uh, your whole family get together uh, to get food and get mooncake together. And obviously, like, I could do that with friends, but it's it's different, right? Mm -hmm. It's definitely different. So it's almost like a Thanksgiving, like American exactly. Thanksgiving. Very exactly. Similar to that. Okay, that makes sense. What are some other major Chinese holidays? Um... There is Chinese New Year. Mm. Um, there's so many. Yeah. <laughs> so like the top three. It's like the I guess I know Chinese New Year is popular. It's like sort of mm -hmm. known in the United States. But like, what's the ones that we don't really know? That'd be like they're very widely celebrated. Like sort of similar to like a Fourth of July or like a equivalent mm, to Christmas. Okay. Um, so I guess every year on October first. To seventh, we have this national day uh, where everybody day. <laughs> national, <laughs> national week <laughs> where everybody have a whole week off, which is a big um, holiday for us. Mm -hmm. And then we have uh, another week off from May the first to the seventh, which is Labor Day, Labor Week. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, and then like Chinese version of Thanksgiving that I just mentioned, yeah. and other small mm -hmm. holidays here and there. All right. That's good. Hopefully my viewers can learn a little more about the Chinese culture and holidays. Yes, going off of that, is there anything about living in China that would shock the average person from the United States? Mm, well, the first thing I can think of is also food related. It's like Chinese people eat everything. We eat everything that you can think of. Um, and every time I bring like an American friend to China, it's always a shock for them. They're always like, you eat that? That's chicken feet. And I'm like, yes, we do. Um, 
Yeah, I remember that my first time, one of my friends, Cody, he took me to dim sum and he was like, no, I'm not going to tell you what's in it, eat it. <laughs> and, I was like, and it was better because after he told me, I was like, what oh, <laughs> it tasted good. That's probably smart. Yeah, we eat all sorts of like beef stomach. Um, I don't know. We eat like rabbits, dogs, as people have known. We actually don't eat that many dogs anymore. <laughs> anymore, right? Um, we need more on that. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, so I'm my elementary school. There's a restaurant right next to it, and it's a dog hot pot restaurant. I've never been, oh but <laughs> I'm just saying <laughs> it is common. Um, but yeah, and then there's this region in China um, called Chongqing. Um, they eat a lot of rabbits. So rabbit hat, rabbit meat, they are delicious. They just mm. taste like chicken, but more, more tender. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming there's a lot of rapids in that region, and that's why. Uh, probably. I don't know. So we're in our 20s, and dating is obviously a part of life. So how have you found dating to be different? Or is it different at all, I guess? And do you approach it differently as a foreign national? Um, it, it's definitely very different. I think Americans are a lot more forward <laughs> <laughs> than Chinese people Yeah, I can see that. Um, but, yeah, I... How do I approach it as a foreign national? I don't know. I I actually don't consider myself different from any other person mm. on a you know, dating app or whatever. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I'm always very honest about my background, where I'm from, and all that stuff. Um, so yeah and I, I like i said i think dating is very different like i think american boys here they ask you out very early on very forward to tell you how they feel in chinese culture that's a different story mm-hmm. we um we play we dance around um mm-hmm. the topic and we talk a lot through text and through uh phone calls before we actually see each other so that's very different i think mm-hmm. Do you think that, sorry, do you think that they would care about, like, what job he has? Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah, Chinese parents cares a lot about, um, like, what their daughter or son's other half are doing in terms of profession. So it's like being, like, a housewife not really a thing? Oh, it is definitely. (laughs) I think housewife, being a housewife is a choice, right? But, Mm. like, before you make that choice, what you're doing is also important. Um, That's a good way to put it. It is a choice. So do you think there'll be a real housewife of Shanghai anytime soon? Sorry, no. (laughs) Why not? That's not me. (laughs) Not you. I'm saying in general. Do you think it could be a thing? Do do Chinese like reality TV? Is that, like, is it popular? We actually, I don't know. I I honestly don't watch that many Chinese shows, but I don't Mm. think there's, like, a equivalent of real housewife (laughs) in China. Maybe we have a venture here. (laughs) (laughs) Sort of shifting to that, you brought up your parents and how important family is, but I want to gauge, there's a whole like tiger parent meme, I guess, mm-hmm. notion about it in the United States, but what are Chinese parents like? Um, they're exactly how you think they're like. <laughs> <laughs> they're very strict. Um, they care a lot about your grade, your job, and what you're doing next, and stuff like that. So, yeah. And I don't know, like, I think my parents, they always consider themselves, like, better than other Chinese parents as if, like, they're not as strict. Mm -hmm. And I think they are a little bit, but I don't know, like, my mom say that she never cares about my grade until I get a B. (laughs) (laughs) Then it's crazy. (laughs) So they do care a Mm -hmm. lot. Um, Yeah, and I think Chinese parents sacrifice a lot for their kids. And I think partially is because the whole one child policy thing, right? Mm. Like they only have one kid and they want to make sure that they're successful. And you see a lot of parents that go to um, like extreme extent mm. to like make sure their kids get like a very good education. They get every the resources they possibly need in the world. So it seems very similar to Jamaican parents. I definitely have heard those stressors on grades being told the 99 wasn't good enough and asking where that missing point was going. <laughs> So now we're sort of looking forward on your journey. You're, you've been here in the United States for quite some time, and you still have some more time left on your visa. So you, but 
one what what advice would you offer for other migrants in your shoes maybe somebody preparing for their international journey for college or college graduates you know starting their career for the first time and just truly being an american outside the bubble of college advice for other migrants what are you looking for in that question (laughs) (laughs) for anyone who's trying to like come to the states like like, as a student like what would you like yeah all right if anyone just like what's your experience with like if if somebody from china went to your high school Mm -hmm. it's like called you up on the phone it's like see the thing is like i would tell them to do exactly what i did like just branch out more and stuff but i know that like there are people that happily fine living their life just like sticking Mm -hmm. with their international circles you know and that's like a fine way to live too i'm not saying like my way is the only way that's the Mm -hmm. good you know i'm trying to not send that message across through this question yeah i get that but what advice would you give you (laughs) (laughs) oh okay i think my advice would be um i think it's about i think every time i made a conscious choice um, that would influence like extended period of my life. I always think about okay, like if I don't do this, would I regret it in five years? Like the same thing with um, transferring. The same thing with like picking Virginia versus California and like uh, being a sorority and things like that. Like I like do I absolutely a hundred percent enjoyed all of those experiences? No, I don't. And would I go back and do it again? Yes, I would because otherwise I would have regretted it. I will always wonder. Um, what would it be like to be in a sorority during college, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so I think just always ask yourself that question. If you don't do this, would you regret it? And if the answer is yes, then go ahead and do it. That's some sound advice. I would definitely take it if I were to live up life in another country. So shifting on to one of my last questions, which is a staple that I ask every guest, is your migration journey over? Do you see yourself returning home or living in the U.S. for a while? Do you want to switch it up and go to another country? So what are your plans? That's a good question. I actually get that question a lot. Um, I think, so, well, I'm on my second year of my three-year STEM OPT thing. And obviously, I need to draw the lottery for H-1B. And if I get it, um, then I'll have, like, more years to stay in the States. I'll get married. Um, yeah, well, that's harder than drawing the lottery, but, (laughs) um, I, I don't know. Do I see myself returning home? It's like a question I think about all the time because, you know, my parents are there. I'm their only child. Um, they definitely don't want to move to the States. And I understand that because they have their whole life. Um, in China and they don't have any friends here and I wouldn't want them to move here and be miserable Um, so does that mean that I'm going to be apart from my parents for a very long time I don't know Um, so I don't know I think I'm still thinking about that Um, but I definitely see myself in the states for another two or five more years uh, whatever the lottery uh, comes out to be but would I switch to another country? I think at some point I do want to. Like, I think I want to live in another country at some point for a couple of years just to see how it is. Because um, why not? So, do you have any countries on your mind? Anything you particularly care about? Or is it more just like whatever your life takes you? Yeah, whatever, whatever, my, takes you? whatever <laughs> my life takes me. <laughs> <laughs> what about regions of the world? I mean, you've had North America. I want to go to Europe. Europe. Europe would be cool. I think Europe would be fun. Mm-hmm. Europe's interesting. Yeah. So to your point about your parents and sort of wanting to take after them, is there a big culture of wanting to sort of take care, taking care of your elders yeah. in China? Yeah, I think so. Like I said earlier, I think family is a, such an important concept in Chinese culture. And it's, it's rooted in our value that we have to take care of our elderly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like given that I'm the only child, it's like I have the whole full responsibility to do that and i can't like expect my siblings to do that because i don't have any siblings um so yeah i don't know i feel guilty all the time about coming to the states and decide to study abroad because i know how much my parents sacrificed just like providing that financial support and like allowing me to come here to the states that's like taking a huge toll on their uh, financial status and like um mental status just yeah. because i'm so apart i don't know 
That's definitely a good point. Like <clears throat> you bring up like the one child thing, only child thing. It really adds another layer to it because like your parents' only child is across the world. I know. And that's sad. You have it, and then due to the coronavirus, you obviously haven't been able to go back home and see them. Yeah. Which we know is difficult. I think sort of going from that with the one child policy and a lot of people in China being only ch- children. How does that work with sort of taking care of your elders? Is the burden is on one person for like, their parents and maybe even their parents. It's like. It's what six people. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely a lot. I think it's like a big problem that China is having, right? Like, if you think about it individually, I, like I have to take care of my parents, and my mom is the only child as well, so mm. I really have to take care of her parent, uh, her parents, so my grandparents, as well um, as part of my responsibility. But if you think about it as a society, um, I think the current like younger generations in China, they're having. A lot of pressure in terms of like tax. They're getting taxed a lot because they're they have so many elderly people to support, mm. um, for government to support. So it is a big problem, and they're loosening up a little bit for the one child policy. So the current um, policy is that if both of your parents are the only child, you can have a second one mm. without any um, financial penalty from the government. So I, I think that that will help a little bit with the issue. But um, going back to me. <laughs> Just get knocked. So unfortunately, we are coming up on time. But as per usual, Tian, I had fun speaking with you, and I appreciate you sharing your story with me and opening up on my show and supporting me. But do you have any projects, publications, or social media handles you want to share? A shout out. No pressure if you don't. I don't. All right. Well, thank you. It's been a great. That was a great interview. I think we got the exclusive scoop on China, kind of. Regardless, I hope that you guys learned a lot from my good friend Tianchu and all that she had to share today about her culture and her upbringing. And I hope that you guys, the push pull factor army, th- does that one work? I hope so. Regardless, I hope that you guys learned more about China and continue to tune in to hear real migration stories from real people. As always, remember to subscribe where you get your favorite podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at PushPullFactor and check out our website at PushPullFactor.com. Have a good one.